Welcome back to the 86th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories about bailouts and how the government is coming to the aid of SVB, Jeff Bezos's rocket company, and also we're going to look at how the government gets involved in an antitrust case that's coming up. And, of course, we're going to end our today with the Daily Delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So, what do you see as the role of government in the market? There's no doubt that they have much more or have been much more involved than they were at the inception of this country, breaking up mergers and monopolies, implanting heavy regulations on different companies, even bailing out banks when they fear the ripple effects on the market. But are these practices right? People would argue they protect consumers, and this could very well be true, and has been true in the past. But if the government continues to step in, how could we know what the alternative would be and what would that look like? Throw your opinions down in the comments section. I'd love to hear what you have to think on this issue. You'll obviously have a good understanding of my opinion here in a minute. So let's jump to our first article. This one comes from HuffPost. U.S. U.K. take extraordinary steps to stem fallout from SVB, or Silicon Valley Bank, collapse. So, let's first highlight what's happening, or the options that the government took in the UK. Because, of course, we're here in the US, so that one doesn't necessarily affect us as much, but it kind of sets the stage for what's going on. And one option to handle this giant failure of one of the biggest banks in America. Quote, governments in the UK and US took extraordinary steps to stop a potential banking crisis after a historic failure of Silicon Valley Bank, even as another major bank was shut down. The UK Treasury and the Bank of England announced early Monday that they had facilitated the sale of SVB UK to HSCB, sorry, HSBC, Europe's biggest bank, ensuring the security of 6.7 billion pounds, roughly 8.1 billion U.S. dollars, of deposits. British officials worked throughout the weekend to find a buyer for the U.K. subsidiary of the California-based bank. Its collapse was the second largest bank failure in history, end quote. And this is, this is how I think that it should go. If the government wasn't to get involved at all, then the assets of the bank would go out onto the free market and different buyers would come in and scoop them up. They would buy up their debt obligations. They would buy up the assets of the bank and probably at a pretty good price and make some money off of it. And this is a free market approach. This is the government coming in and not saying, okay, no, we're not going to interfere. In this case, we're just going to help you find a buyer so that the buyer that comes in can cover the deposits of the people who have money in that branch or the bank 
of SVB in the UK. And this is a free market approach for the most part. But as we'll see, this is not how regulators and people that got involved in the process went about this in the United States. And it's a pretty interesting solution because it doesn't actually bail out the bank altogether, but it does cover the depositors. And at the end of the day, you're going to have to decide whether you like the way that the U.S. government is going about this. And I have a quote that describes what they're doing, and we can discuss it a little bit more afterwards. So, the outline of the plan, basically. Quote, This step will ensure that U.S. banking system continues to perform its vital roles of protecting deposits and providing access to credit to households and businesses in a manner that promotes strength and sustainability of economic growth. The agencies said in a joint statement, Under the plan, depositors at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, including those holdings exceeding 250000 insurance limit, will be able to access their money on Monday, end quote. And before I go on and describe how they're going about and doing this, notice here that they said it's above the $250,000 limit. Anybody that knows or has banked knows that the FDIC insures up to $250,000 of money in certain banks that it says are, okay, hey, we've done the research, we know they're legitimate, and we're going to say that we're going to back them, and if anything does happen, then as a depositor, if you have anything under that $250,000, you can come to us, and we'll make sure that you get that money back. But in this case, they're doing it for a bank that lends money out to tech startups. That is the bank of venture capitalists, lots of companies that are startups. And at the end of the day, they're not just going to have less than 250000 Some of these companies had millions in the bank. And the government is stepping in and saying, okay, so we're going to ensure that you can get all your money out because we don't want these startups to fail. We also don't want the startups and other people to look at this situation and say, oh my goodness, SVB, they, they screwed their people over. And look, those small businesses, they lost millions of dollars. Maybe as a small business in a different state, I should take my million dollars, $2 million that I have saved in a bank and take it out before this could happen to me. So the government's really afraid of the ripple effects. And that's what we discussed at the very beginning, that at the end of the day, they're trying to protect consumers by saying, okay, if this ripples outward, if more banks collapse, then there's a higher likelihood that a lot of consumers may not be able to access their cash that they need to pay for things. But also, they, if they have more than $250,000 in those banks, they could lose that money outright. So, even though in this specific case they're willing to give more than the $250,000, they may not always be willing to do that. So, they're trying to protect the consumer while also ensuring that there's not a run on the banks across the market. And this is for the health of the banking industry, which obviously the U.S. government has a vested interest in ensuring is okay and healthy because they are the backbone of investors, they are the backbone of a lot of different companies who need to get loans. And also, 
by that same measure, based on those two things, they're the backbone of a lot of different segments of the U.S. economy. And think about it. If the bank, let's say that you go to the local credit union bank, even though that makes no sense because a bank and a credit union are different things. But suppose, beyond my stupidity, the name is Credit Union Bank, and you're a small business. You have your money saved up in the bank, and you need to pay your employees, but the bank goes under. You don't have access to those funds anymore. Now, if you have a personal bank account somewhere else, or you just have a little bit of cash stacked up personally, that's where you're going to have to pay your employees out of. Well, that's not sustainable forever. And if this ripples all across the market and lots of different banks shut down, that could adversely affect a lot of different companies and businesses. And that could really hurt the U.S. economy. So that's what the U.S. government's trying to contain here. So let's talk more about their fears, though. Quote, In a sign of how fast the financial bleeding was occurring, regulators announced that New York-based Signature Bank had also failed and was being seized on Sunday. At more than $110 billion in assets, Signature Bank is the third largest bank failure in U.S. history. So before I go on with the quote, we had our second largest bank failure in U.S. history, and then within a day, we had our second, uh, sorry, our third largest bank failure in U.S. history. So you can see why they would be very afraid that this could be an issue. Quote, in an effort to shore up confidence in the banking system, the Treasury Department, Federal Reserve, and FDIC said Sunday that all Silicon Valley bank clients will be protected and able to access their money. This also announced, they also announced steps that are intended to protect the bank's customers and prevent additional bank runs. End quote. So, you may be asking, at the end of the day, well, how are they doing this? What are they actually putting in place that allows these banks to pay back their debtors? And I'll get to a quote that really talks about this, but basically it is a emergency lending program. They are saying to these defunct banks or banks that have said, okay, we can't pay you back right now, we're basically going to go into foreclosure. We're going to close down. They're saying to these banks that, no, okay, we're going to give you a short-term lending program where you can lend from the federal government with your treasuries, your treasuries, uh, notes that they bought from the government as a piece of collateral. So, I'll break it down very, very briefly. I am not an expert by any means, but as a person who has at least studied the financial system and how the government issues treasury notes and things of this nature, at least I can pretend that I know what I'm talking about a little bit. So the U.S. government issues treasury notes, basically really, really saved bonds. And companies, when they want to put a whole bunch of extra money that they have somewhere and they want to ensure that's in a safe asset, then they buy these treasury notes from the U.S. government. It's supposed to be a responsible move. But then when you have a period of really high inflation, those notes become less valuable because the government has to issue new notes at a higher interest rate in order to entice people to buy them. So then... SVB bought a whole bunch of these in the past, 
And now they're worth less money. And when people started coming asking for their money, they had to sell them at a discount, at a loss from what they originally paid. And that meant that people had little faith that they could get their money out. Well, now any extra treasury notes that they have in their back pocket that have lost value, they may have lost value, but they still have value. And the government says, okay, we'll take them as collateral in a lending program where you can get even with your customers. All your depositors can get even. And then from there, if you can't pay us back with your extra assets, then we'll just keep the treasury notes and we'll let you basically die in darkness, which is a very interesting program. It's the U.S. government actually buying back some of its bonds. So it's putting more money into the economy by taking out some of its treasury notes, which is why I find it interesting. And I will actually read here a different quote, but I find it interesting that a lot of people are saying, oh, well, this is better than 2008, 2007, because they're not just using taxpayer dollars in order to bail out the banks. They're not just going to give them a giant influx of money to say, okay, nope, get back on your feet, bank. They're actually creating a lending program to ensure that their people that need their money from those banks get even, and then from there, they're going to let it go. But if they are buying back their treasury notes, they're buying back a piece of paper that was meant to be sold to take money out of the economy, because that's another piece of the treasury note equation. You want people to buy your really safe asset in order to give a little bit of money over to the treasury to take that money out of the economy, because then the treasury can say, okay, we're going to hold all these extra U.S. dollars that we're getting for our treasury notes. That's a little bit of extra money outside of the economy. It's not flowing through, and that can also help stem inflation. So now they're reversing the process. They're saying, okay, here's all this money for your collateral, these treasury notes that we're taking back, and that's going to be inflationary. So even if the taxpayer isn't directly paying for the bailout or at least this program that they're implementing, they are paying for it via inflation because where does that money come from? Where do these loan programs come from? It's not like they the, the U.S. government keeps millions upon millions just sitting in reserve for an incident like this. They had to create a whole new fund. Quote, through Sunday, steps marked the most extensive government intervention in the banking system since the 2008 financial crisis. It act, its actions are relatively limited compared to what it did 15 years ago. The two failed banks themselves have not been rescued, and taxpayer money has not been provided to the banks, end quote. And while this holds true, it doesn't mean that the value of the U.S. dollar in your back pocket is going to get any higher. It's actually going to get lower. That's the point of inflation. It gets lower over time. But when they're pumping even more money into the economy, it gets lower faster. And that is a form of taxation in some way, if you think about it, because it's the federal government who controls the flow of money. And then they're actually saying, well, no, we can just make more money. Therefore, your money is worth less. It's a form of taxation. It's just saying, effectively, you have less market power. You have less buying power. And the government has more because they're the ones that are able to print it whenever they want. So 
keep that in mind. Whenever you hear this headline that it's not directly taxpayers' money, it's true, but it doesn't mean it's not going to affect you, and it doesn't mean that they're not taking advantage of a little loophole in order to appear as though they're not bailing out this bank. And, I mean, that's, it is fair. They're not actually bailing out this bank. I just think it's a little bit of a tricky, underhanded tactic, which is to give a unlimited lending program to ensure all the depositors who believe that at the end of the day they deserve their money back to actually get their money back. And the question then becomes, well, anytime there's a bank failure and there are companies or even just plain people who have millions of dollars above the FDIC insurance limit, are they going to get paid out? This creates a, a weird precedent, which is, oh, that $250,000 that is insured by the FDIC, well, the bank, you know, it failed last year, and the government stepped in, and they paid all their depositors back, so maybe I should make some risky moves with my money. Maybe I can do risky things with my money, because, well, they paid the entire balance back to these other companies. Why wouldn't they do the same for me? It raises that question going into the future. So violating their own rules sets a really interesting standard, and we'll see if it comes back to bite them in the butt in the future. I personally think it will because people take advantage of these sort of things and they expect these sort of things to continue, but that doesn't always, you know, that's not always the case. Maybe I'm being a little bit cynical. That is totally possible. All right, let's jump to our second story about bailouts from The Daily Caller. Biden's Bezos bailout is out of this world. And as you'll find out, the, the title is a bit of a play on words there. So let me just fill you in on the background, basically. Quote, is the federal government prepared to hand Jeff Bezos, the third richest man in the world, millions of our taxpayer dollars again? Unfortunately, it sure seems that way. Bezos knows when it comes to taxpayer subsidies, the sky is the limit. Again, this author with the puns. And with the help of President Joe Biden's Space Force, his rocket company Blue Origin appears to be ready to blast off. Biden's Space Force recently changed the long-standing selection criteria the government has used to decide who is and isn't qualified to conduct national security launches. And it appears to have been done to ensure more of our hard-earned dollars orbit straight into the $116 billion man's pocket. So if we break it down, we take a step back. Why is this important? Because in the past, as you may remember, there was a very heated battle for a contract that NASA was putting up in order to transport things to the moon, to the International Space Station, basically a transport contract. And it was decided that Elon Musk and his SpaceX team had the resources at their disposal, they had the equipment, and they deserved to win the contract. And Bezos was really unhappy about this. He actually ended up suing, saying this is unfair, you should have considered me, blah, 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 whatever a person with multi-multi-billions of dollars does in order to make it so that it comes out in his favor. But now, because Bezos is such a prominent donor, or at least that's what the author's arguing here, that the Bezos is such a prominent donor to the Democratic Party, and he has such sway because of the amount of jobs that he brings with Amazon to the United States, that he somehow persuaded the Biden administration to open up this little 
bit of a, a loophole in Biden's Space Force. So let's actually talk about that loophole and what's changing, how the policy is changing. Quote, Biden's Space Force has created a new section in the program that will allow Bezos, who has out-of-this-world space dreams, but not completed a functioning rocket to transition them into reality, to win government contracts anyway. Ars Technica reported that the Biden administration only made this rule change for risk-tolerant missions. So, if the rocket blows up and the satellite is lost, it will not have a hugely adverse effect on the military's operations. But if that still, you know, still raises the question, why is the government so willing to blow up taxpayer money this carelessly when it is already proven contractors that are able to do the job? End quote. And this is a, a good question that the Daily Caller is raising, in my opinion. Why are you giving it to a contractor who cannot have a proof of work. They cannot say, oh, we sent up this many satellites with this many problems, and our error rate is this. Uh, we know how to deal with this issue because we've dealt with it before. They're not sending up a proven company. They're sending up a company that hasn't even launched a vehicle that could transport these sort of things into space yet. Yes, they did have the launch I believe, of their Glenn rocket, if I'm mistaken with the original name, I'm sorry, that took Bezos and a few other people up into space. And they've had a few launches to that nature. The space tourism industry is what they've been focusing on up until this point. But why is the government so willing to award these contracts to Bezos when, at the end of the day, they have other distributors who have proven that they've been able to do it and they have a longer track record. And as a taxpayer, you really should be asking yourself, why should you be happy with them putting your money up into a space rocket that could explode, essentially? Because they are endorsing a more risky option than what they have. That is not acceptable. If this was the shipping of goods across the ocean, they're not going to go with a brand new company. And let's say these goods are vital to the security between the U.S. and Europe. There's a really important trade deal going on, and these products need to get across the ocean. They're not going to go with a brand new company that hasn't fully built a ship yet to send these across the ocean and possibly lose this important stuff that they're sending to Europe. But, the, you know, if it's a really small trade deal and it's something really small they're sending over there and they're not worried about it sinking, oh, yeah, fine, go with the new company. And while I do think there is an interesting argument to be made about increasing competition because SpaceX and a few other companies that send satellites into low Earth or orbit have a monopoly right now on the transportation, space transportation industry and trying to encourage competition so SpaceX can't just charge whatever they want. I think that's an interesting argument. But you should also just give Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos' company, enough time to catch up to them and then let the free market decide that competition. They shouldn't be picking favorites right now and trying to encourage one to catch up to the other. They should let the other catch up to them naturally. Because now that they have these government contracts, they're like, oh, well, we always have this cutout. We don't have to work that much harder to be that much better because we'll always have this cutout with the Space Force to send up these satellites. So 
rather than letting the free market ride, the government is stepping in and trying to intervene. And we'll see if that has positive effects. It very well could. If the whole philosophy of Bezos was, our company is going to go down if we don't get these contracts, if this little cutout is not changed, and we don't get the funding from this, that won't actually allow us to get better and pressure te- uh, SpaceX to get better at producing these rockets. Maybe that's the case here. And if that is the case, then there's a good argument to be made about encouraging and strengthening competition in that industry. But if that's not the case, I don't really see it. And that's just my opinion on the matter. I think the way the author really lays this out is this really is a bailout for Bezos. At the end of the day, he didn't get the contract he wanted with NASA. And now he has to step back and say, how else can I get the money that I wanted? How else can I get the cooperation from the government that I wanted? Because I tried to sue for that last contract. It didn't go over well. So now I have to go through an alternative means. And let's be clear, it's not like Bezos is going to be sending up lots of different shipments to the Artemis missions on the moon, this new space, uh, the moon base that they're trying to build there. But at the end of the day, this small cutout for one specific donor on the side of the administration that has control over that agency is a little bit interesting. And I think it could very well be called a bailout. But that's enough rambling on that one. I think I got the point across. I think I've raised some concerns, some counterarguments. I was trying to be balanced there, but obviously my bias did show through. But I'm pretty sure a lot of people would agree with me. Why are we helping the richest man on the planet when he needs to buckle down and invest in the right ways to ensure that his company is efficient going into the future? All right, so then I'm going to just give a very brief breakdown of this story from Fox News. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's shocking spirit folly will hurt all air travelers. So for those of you that don't know, the government, they step in when there's an antitrust issue and they believe a company will have too much control over certain segments of the market and they may end up having a monopoly or just the fact that two companies are merging may lower the amount of competition in the industry. So it's normally incumbent upon the government to take these things into consideration when a new merger is coming up. And recently you may have heard of the Spirit and JetBlue merger, two of the smaller, cost-efficient airliners who, if they were to combine, have about a 10% market share. So let me highlight the thinking that's going on right now. Quote, today we are witnessing the same antitrust folly repeating itself, with Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts, attacking the proposed merger between JetBlue and Spirit Airlines. And now, Attorney General Merrick Garland filed a lawsuit to stop the proposed business deal. In a recent letter to the Department of Transportation, Warren declared her opposition to the merger because the four largest airlines, American, Southwest, Delta, and United, controlled 80% of the domestic market, more than at any point in the modern history of commercial aviation. And proposed JetBlue Spirit merger is just another latest threat to the consumers in this long string of mergers. And what's the reasoning behind that? Because, you know, it sounds, oh, wow, the top four companies have 80%. What's, what's the reasoning here that JetBlue and Spirit would be an issue. If they merge, does that mean that the top five companies basically have 95%? 
So on Tuesday, March 7th, Garland brought the full weight of the Justice Department to bear on uh, in support of Warren's misguided position. It is difficult to look at all this without concluding that their approach, if successful, will simply protect the four largest airlines from competition by lower-cost carriers. JetBlue's proposed acquisition of Spirit, which will give the new company less than 10% of the industry's market share, is designed to provide the company with the added scale it needs to better compete against the big four. It will increase the number of flights in JetBlue and Spirit's current routes and add more flights in areas that legacy carriers currently hold, thereby increasing choice in lowering cost, end quote. So you can obviously see that Fox News does not agree with what Miss Warren is saying. And maybe it's just because Miss Warren is saying it and they want to be the opposition to whatever she puts forward. That is very well possible. But I do think that they highlight a pretty good point here which is, in the airline industries, economies of scale, the ability to cut costs or have cost efficiencies when you have more planes in operation, more locations to fly to, they are quite large. I actually did an analysis of this merger when I was in strategic management, my senior-level capstone class. So at the end of the day, they're able to benefit from these economies of scale. And as... Fox News pointed out, they will have less than 10% market uh, market share. Now, let's be clear, it is 9%, so it's right there on the edge. And that means that the top five firm concentration ratio would be 89%, which is dangerous. But the top four are expensive legacy carriers that are not trying to cut costs or don't as often cut as much cost for consumers. And if this was to go through, it would be the largest low-cost airline. So it puts a little bit more pressure. If they have 10% of the market share, and now they have the resources from both companies, the new routes, the extra planes, the supply chain networks to get low-cost food and different products on the flight, then the argument could be made that they could cut cost for the consumer. And that may make the big four a little bit scared saying oh no well people are going to go for this now more outfitted more recognized on a national scale a company that has the ability to fly from austin to los angeles or from seattle to portland when they may not have had that option before and those lines would have only been carried by the legacy carriers the legacy carriers are looking at that and saying oh well in order to compete we would have to lower our costs so maybe we should lobby our friends in the government to stop this merger and say that it would be anti-competitive. So I see Fox's biased perspective, but also I do understand that the concentration of the industry is going to be extremely high if this merger does go through. But there is a counter-argument to that, which is it could technically be considered its own market. I haven't done enough research to fully understand how many other low-cost carriers there are in the airline industry, but... In theory, they could be considered their own separate market inside the airliner industry, which is the low-cost segment. And that could be beneficial if there are more low-cost airlines, or it could be very not not beneficial because if you were to take it and they were the only two low-cost carriers and they were merging, there's no way the FTC would approve it. But if there were about four others, more regional airlines that were flying, then maybe an argument could be made that the concentration of that industry is not as high, and therefore they should let the merger go through. 
But we'll see where the cards fall. Obviously, Fox News doesn't like Elizabeth Warren, and Elizabeth Warren does not like the Spirit and the JetBlue merger. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from the Dodo. Dog waits outside her neighbor's window for daily kisses. So everyone has experienced that cool schoolyard crush. Now just replace the schoolyard with an apartment complex and instead of people, imagine dogs. Quote, through the window of an apartment adjacent to hers, Winnie could see the outline of a figure who had two ears and a helicopter tail. A shadow made his way over to the window and soon Winnie was face to face with a new best friend. His name was Chips and Winnie was instantly smitten with him. And after a while, they received, they were receiving daily kisses. They even decided to go out on a date. Quote, Winnie had only ever seen Chip through the window. So when they finally got to walk together, she was a little nervous, Madden said. But it didn't take her long to warm up, and they were so happy together. End quote. All right, so if you want to read any of today's articles, you want to see any of the cute videos or photos from this article, or if you want to find the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts, Podvine, all those links will be in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there is the Twitter handle, at your daily flip, where I post the link to the YouTube video on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. All right, with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.